0: I started to see that looking at us aesthetically, you know, we might look fit and ripped and have six pack abs, but underneath, like you mentioned, underneath the hood, you pop that up like you can see there's your blood tells you a different story. Sometimes
1: sports science, strength and conditioning, high performance coaching. Welcome to the decoding excellence show. Today's episode of the Decoding Excellence Show is brought to you by Vaud Performance, the makers of the Nordboard, the Dashboard, and the Groin Bar. Whether it's return to play, rehabilitation, or performance testing and training, Vaud Performance has the tools you need. So who's actually using VOD performance technology? I don't know, something like 14 NFL, 19 NCAA, 15 English Premier League, seven English Championship, five NBA teams, and six MLB teams. They have the tools you need to get the best out of your athletes. Check them out at VODperformance.com. Welcome back to the Decoding Excellence Show. This is part two with Katie Mark. If you haven't listened to part one of this episode, please go back, listen to the show. It was an incredible show. Katie talked about everything from the gut microbiome, hydration and sport drinks to exercise induced muscle cramps. It was was chocked full from start to finish with high quality materials that not a lot of other podcasts and other nutritionalists are talking about. But part two in Katie Mark's show today, we start to get into the weeds about a lot of other things as well. We start talking about the differences between fit and unhealthy, and sometimes how athletes can be incredibly fit for competition, but underlying, when you're looking at blood markers, can be entirely unhealthy. Katie then goes into discussing periodized nutrition, how different macro and micronutrients are important at different seasons and different phases of high rigorous training schedules. And then she gets into the discussion of high protein diets, the myths, the facts, the realities of it, um, and starts really debunking some of the research out there and really goes into it. It was a fascinating conversation, and I really took a lot away from what Katie Mark shared on the second half of this show. Towards the end of this thing, we start talking a little bit about some of the lessons that she's learned from mentors and her experiences uh, working within Rio um, for the Rio Olympics 2016. And uh, and again, I, I cannot thank Katie Mark enough for coming on the show and really setting a high bar for the other nutritionists and uh, and people coming onto this show, she was prepared, and it was incredible from start to finish. So, a little bit of a different show. I sit back, I take notes, I uh, I don't ask so many probing questions because Katie really just uh, stole the spotlight on this thing, and and she was on a roll, and I just wanted her to keep going. So. Uh, please enjoy the next hour and 15 minutes of the Decoding Excellence show. Grab a pen, grab a paper, get prepared to take some notes because this thing was incredible. So without further ado, here is my conversation part two with Katie Mark. And welcome back, the Decoding Excellence show. I'm joined with Katie Mark, and we are on uh, what is otherwise the second half of the show. And if uh, for the listening audience, if this is the you know the first half of what you're listening to, then I would suggest that you go back listen to part one because you're going to be missing out on a number of different great topics that Katie discussed, which is. Uh, And and way more in detail than what I'm going to summarize here, but certainly just the importance of the gut microbiome and how that impacts athletic performance and how you can get a better understanding of that as far as fueling and real food strategies to promote a healthy gut uh, environment. Certainly, Katie shared a tremendous amount of information as far as sport drinks and hydration, and I use the word sport drinks with air quotations around it. Um, But really, should athletes actually have sports drinks? Are there better rehydration strategies? And Katie discusses a lot of that in in, uh, the first half of the show. And then we started to talk about sort of uh, muscle cramps and exercise-associated muscle cramps and the science or lack thereof of actual science to it. And um, some of the research and some of the products out there that is actually sort of combating this thing. So if you haven't listened to first uh, the first half of the show, go back, download it via iTunes or elsewhere, your podcast listening of choice and listen to it because it's an amazing first half of the show. But um, for all those that are now joining us in part two, uh, again, Katie, welcome back to the Decoding Excellence Show.
0: Thanks, Adam. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, part one I know is a lot of information, um, but it was all great information. And uh, thanks for the intro. I really appreciate it. Um, so, for those who haven't listened to part one, um, just briefly a little bit about me. Um, I graduated from Tufts last December with two master's degrees, a master's in nutrition communication and a master's in public health. Uh, then moved back to Miami where I was born and raised. And so I've been working part time um, as a research and development uh, consultant uh, for nutrition, so various nutritional companies. Also, work as a sports nutritionist um, and a, a writer in sports nutrition. Um, some of my works even ghostwritten. Um, so doing a lot of that and also training a lot as a competitive cyclist. Um, you know, I train about 10 to 15 hours a week, uh, you know, which kind of cuts into my work. Um, but it's all, you know, my training also helps, um, you know, being a sports nutritionist and, and being able to uh, apply the science. Um, and, uh, you know, before, you know, a lot of this that I'm doing right now, it's, also, before I'm starting a dietetic internship this summer, um, because I'd like to become a registered dietitian nutritionist, um, so I could start working in pro sports, um, and I'm, I'm really excited. I, my dietetic internship is through a, a program called Wellness Workdays, um, based in Boston, and um, I'm actually focusing on sports nutrition and entrepreneurship, and I've got some really cool rotations lined up uh, for six to seven months of 1,200 hours of work, so I'm really excited. Um, I'm gonna be working with uh, the registered dietitian for University of Miami Athletics, and um, I've also got a great opportunity to go out to Colorado and work with one of my favorite sports dietitians, Bob Sibohar, um, he was the former director of sports nutrition at the University of Florida. He was also a sports uh, dietitian for the U.S. Olympic Committee. Um, he's a phenomenal sports dietitian, and I'm really excited to go out there and maybe hopefully tour the US Olympic Training Center. That would be really cool. Um, also, I'm really excited to have a rotation um, early 2018 um, working with the Miami Marlins and a, a registered dietitian. Um, under her supervision with the the Marlins, so that I'm really really excited, and I'm hoping by uh, early 2018 I'll be a, a registered dietitian. And I can start uh, jumping straight into uh, doing sports nutrition at the pro sport level.
1: Hopefully, in 2018, as well as once you're completed and you've tested that uh, you're starting to answer interview <laughs> interviews for you know professional and and collegiate sport programs because they'd be crazy. Uh, after you know the first half of this show and obviously the materials you've shared are on both Twitter and Instagram and elsewhere and the papers you've wrote they'd be crazy not to hire you
0: I hope so
1: <laughs> <laughs> right that's that's the plan that's the plan for the listening audience that missed it in episode uh, in the first half it's uh again I referenced your Twitter and your Instagram but it's at on your mark underscore N-U-T-R for nutrition and on your mark nutrition uh for your Instagram account. And I would imagine that uh if you type that in, that you'd be able to find your resources and appropriate links to uh your pages and backgrounds and probably LinkedIn and everywhere else. So um thank you again for the update for those of the those of the audience that didn't get to listen to it and I, I'm excited for part two of this show because you're going to discuss uh, a couple different things that I think uh, when we look at the world of collegiate athletics that we see time and time again, athletes that uh, and which will be sort of the first, hopefully, topic that we can go into um, athletes by all account. If, if we were to say that the eye test, if you will, that appear every little bit of fit, uh, whether it's aesthetically or else. But might underneath the skin, when we start to assess the blood and we start to look at different biomarkers, might be anything but fit. So I'd love for you to jump in on that and kind of know uh, from your educational experience and professional pursuits here what uh, what you think when it comes to athletes. Are they fit? Are they, but are they unhealthy? Where where does that uh, where does that stand for you?
0: So yeah, this is a really, really important topic, um, and I really, um, I was interested in this a long time ago, or a few years ago, when I started doing um, blood analysis and blood testing, not just on myself, but uh, for different athletes, and, and testing for certain biomarkers, because I started to see that, you know, looking at us aesthetically... Um, You know, we might look fit and ripped and have six pack abs, but underneath, like you mentioned, underneath the hood, you pop that up like you can see there's your blood tells you a different story sometimes. Um, And so there was a great paper um, that was published uh, recently um, titled Athletes Fit But Unhealthy. And I'm going to, you know, give the a correct contribution to Paul Larson. Um, he's an applied sports scientist and physiologist, and he specializes in endurance performance. Um, he was one of the authors in the paper. And, and this, this paper really resonated with me in terms of um, not only further solidifying my nutritional philosophy, um, but just really seeing it published out there, how there's such a need to address this, Um, and pretty much the observation is that, you know, we see athletes who are fit, but unhealthy, and and we see that unhealthiness, um, you know, through biomarkers, um, through blood testing, through bone mineral density. Um, and this is not just, uh, athletes at the pro level or the elite level. I mean, this includes collegiate, this includes recreational, you know, avid weekend warriors who train like athletes, um, you know, a lot of times You may look fit, but you can be unhealthy. Um, And I think this is really important to educate people, you know, what are the definitions of fit um, and healthy. And they have very different meanings, Um, you know, specifically in taking it from the paper. uh, Fitness is the ability to perform a given exercise task. And health explains a person's state of well-being. Um, and in that well-being, you want your physiology and all of your systems in your body to work together and in, in harmony. Um, so as you can see, there's big differences between the two. Um, and I think that a lot of the times we have this superficial interpretation of what it means to be fit and what it means to be healthy. And a lot of people will see athletes as fit and healthy, but many aren't. Um, you'll see that. A lot of athletes will have high triglyceride levels or high fasting blood sugar, or insulin, and all of that's going to predispose you to certain diseases. And athletes aren't immune to chronic disease. Um, they they just like the general you know population. There's certain risk factors that still apply to them. Um, and you know, I, Adam, I think you know Ryan Horn out of Wake Forest, uh, strength and conditioning coach. But I think we had a tweet exchange one time because he. You know, he had the same, you know, uh, observation that a lot of his athletes, you know, even though they have six pack abs, uh, they don't realize that, you know, when it comes to diet, you know, what they eat, you know, obviously impacts, you know, their health status inside the body that they don't see. Um, and really it's this idea that, you know, you can be fit, but from unhealthy training and, or an unhealthful eating combination, that's going to make you unhealthy on the inside. Um, And so really it's, you know, this excess high training intensity or training volume and, you know, or excess of intake of like processed and refined dietary carbohydrate, you know, they can really contribute to poor health in athletes and in in the long run, you know, impair their longevity. Um, And just as a side note in relation to this, you know, when talking about processed and refined dietary carb, carbohydrates, don't get me wrong, carbs are important for, for an athlete, um, especially, obviously, at higher intensities. But I'm seeing a lot of the times, and this is really through social media, I've seen how some of these, uh, you know, whoever it is, either sports nutrition departments or, um, you know, maybe it's students that are, are doing it or, I don't know, um, dietetic students or, um, you know, strength and conditioning coaches, whoever it is working with or fueling athletes, sometimes I see the foods that they're using to fuel athletes. And it's like this process stuff, like, you know, it's just, I feel like maybe I'm wrong, but their, their take on it is that, Oh, we just need to get them energy and, and sugar so that they can, you know, you know, train. Um, but it's really not considering the context of, you know, their, their fueling, you know, sometimes you don't need, like if an athlete's eating before they go train, you know, they just had lunch two hours before they're training, like, why do they need to eat more, especially, you know, you know, junk food or some of these processed foods right before training? Is it really necessary? Um, and this kind of goes back into a a deeper topic where, um, which I'll kind of touch upon later on is this whole, you know, improving metabolic efficiency, um, and so, you know, this is where this high volume and or high intensity training, as well as the modern diet, which a lot of athletes, you know, focus on this highly processed and refined carbohydrate, and you know, sometimes it's promoted um, among certain nutritionists or coaches, or whoever. Um, and it's really in a way contributing to an unhealthy athlete. Um because in so many ways, this, you know, highly processed and refined foods, it's poor nutrition. And this can cause um, increased inflammation in the body. It can also, um, you know, impair your ability to burn fat for fuel, which is really important. Um, and, you know, all this, these forms of sugar, which athletes, you know, may believe is necessary for better for performance. And, of course, depending on the context, it is. Um, but that's not always the case, you know, 100% of the time that you're exercising. Um, and so this really, this, you know, this modern diet, um, really can lead to poor health. And like I said, in the short term, it's going to, you know, produce inflammation. It's going to impair your ability to burn fat. Um, it can increase, uh, free radicals in your body. So oxidative stress and over time, this is going to, you know, lead to chronic inflammation, and that's going to associate with reduced health. But not only that, there's other dietary factors um, that really contribute to this, like excess alcohol, um, you know, omega-6 consumption is, is pro-inflammatory, so having too much of that compared to omega-3s, which is anti-inflammatory, you know, the trans fat, and, and not just diet, but lifestyle factors, the stress, so different types of stress that's also including psychological stress um, excess exercise, all of this is going to contribute to chronic inflammation. Um, and really that's where it comes down to where, yeah, we have athletes who are fit, but they're unhealthy. And it's because of all these things that I I previously discussed. Um, and so it's like, okay, what do you, what do you do from here? What's the goal? And, you know, this is where I, you know, incorporate into my nutritional philosophy, not just for myself, but, you know, in my work is, you know, I want to improve, obviously, the performance of an athlete. And there's certain foods that are going to help that, Um, you know, certain carbohydrates, like, yeah, if you're doing a really hard, you know, or long run, maybe, you know, having sugar in the form of, you know, some processed food that wouldn't be good for you if you weren't training at that intensity. Yeah, that would be appropriate um, under certain circumstances. But, you know, my goal is to improve health while increasing fitness. Um, and that really comes down to diet. Obviously the training part, the high training volume and intensity, that's obviously not my, um, I don't think that's really my, uh, scope of practice. I would leave that to coaches. Um, but in terms of diet, um, focusing more on replacing highly refined carbohydrate with healthy natural carbohydrate. I like to focus more on fruits and and foods in their wholesome uh, form, um, and you know healthy fats and plenty of protein, which I'm a huge advocate of protein, which I'll talk about later on. Um, but all these things, and and there's really cool ways to manipulate, um, especially related to carbohydrate intake. Um, manipulation to help improve fat burning um, and, and improve certain biomarkers that are important for metabolic health. Um, so really going off of that, I, my goal is to, you know, especially since you know this need of where we're seeing that athletes are fit but unhealthy. Uh, actually, I'm just going to throw out a quick example. Um, I had an athlete who, um, you know, not like lean. She she's lean, um, great shape, has abs uh, works really hard and is, is fit. Um, but then when she got her blood tested, she saw that her fasting blood glucose was near pre-diabetic levels. And you look at this athlete and you're like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, there's just no way you are near, you are pre-diabetic. I mean, there's just no way. Um, and that was really, what was really fascinating was that instigated a behavior change in the athlete because it was this fear like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Now I need to do something about it. Um, You know, now I need to listen to you. (laughs) And you see this difference, because, you know, athletes are not immune to these problems. And, um, you know, so obviously, the hard part is, you know, how do you get the athletes to make a change? Um, And it really comes down to behavior change. and, And some of the ways you can do it is, by showing them data in their body, you know, blood analysis, looking at different, you know, like cortisol levels, testosterone levels, uh, bone mineral density, you know, all these different things that are going to tell you a different story and really can motivate an athlete to make a change. Um, And so that's really what I focus on. I really think that optimal performance, I think sometimes, you know, in terms of, I, I know you've seen this all the time, Adam, in sports nutrition, it's always focused on fueling the athlete and you look at the fuel and a lot of times it's just, you know, I don't, you know, it varies, but a lot of times poor fuel. (laughs) Yeah, it's very poor fuel. And don't get me wrong. Athletes need energy and they need certain things. But I really think we need to take a step back and look at the athlete holistically and really break it down in terms of context of, you know, every single training session every day and the differences in needs so that we can then optimize their diet Um, So that in the end, optimal performance is really athletes who are fit and healthy. And this is really going to help their overall health and and longevity in addition to performance.
1: What resonates with me on that is a number of different things. But, you know, a lot of the times when we have athletes as they go through sort of the onboarding here from freshman to senior year and they are leaving with the graduate, you know, like their degree in hand and hopefully some championship rings in the other that As they go through their career, I think what's sort of common to think about is that especially in the collegiate world where, you know, there's always another level of recruits coming in is that you would think that uh, very sort of unholistically, you would think that, you know, it's a a churn and burn sort of situation where they should be leaving worse. But what we found is that when we go through lifestyle and nutritional education intervention to help promote recovery – a lot of the times our juniors and seniors feel better than when they did their freshman year. And uh, while their bodies might be older and they might have a little bit more mileage, a lot of our athletes at that time really turn a corner because they start to understand how much nutrition pays, uh, plays plays an importance when it comes to the management of inflammation. A lot of the times, the freshmen, as they walk into our facility, never really know how good their body's even supposed to feel because of the overconsumption of you know uh, low nutrient dense foods and high omega six and pro inflammatory foods and poor sleep or an increase of alcohol intake as they sort of leave the nest and actually come to college for the first time poor nutrition and intense training it's almost a perfect storm to set them up for uh, you know inflammatory responses and an inability to ever really fully recover uh, from one intense especially in the intensification from going from one level just to the collegiate world but you combine that with the perfect storm of poor nutri, uh, poor nutrition and they we're digging a hole that they're never able to act, actually climb out of. Um, And then secondly, what really surprises me, and, and you said it, you alluded to it in that, uh, that discussion, was just the, uh, the idea of, wow, it's important to fuel athletes and we want to fuel athletes, we have to sort of understand what the quality of fuel is. And while athletes are trying to reach a certain threshold from a calorie standpoint, you know, it, it reminded me when you were talking about poor fueling strategies, it reminded me of uh, like Dwight Howard a couple years ago when he was still with the Lakers and it famously wrote, you know, I think it was an expose or an ESPN article, but it talked about how his fueling strategy to reach the calories he needed to was like 24 candy bars a given day and the negative consequences from a nerve standpoint and from a an inflammatory response to those uh, simple sugars and overconsumption, um, really was breaking his body down. And, and as that organization started to change what he was eating and his fueling strategies and reduce some of those simple sugars and some of that consumption of poor nutrient foods, uh, not only did his body respond, uh, he felt healthier and and a little bit more robust and resilient to injuries. So a huge critical piece as far as the promotion of athlete wellness can be tackled through new, uh, through a a, a focus of what we're actually consuming and how we're actually consuming it.
0: Right. And I don't mean to interrupt, but just because you mentioned the Lakers, uh, I love that you mentioned that because I I really want to highlight, um, the strength and conditioning coach there, Tim DiFrancesco. He has done a phenomenal job. He does a lot of their nutrition and I follow him on social media. I really recommend people follow him. Um, I love what he does. I, I love his nutritional philosophy. Um, and he's done a really great job with the Lakers. And I, I mean, to me, like, that's really awesome to see that a strength and conditioning coach like him really stays up to date on, you know, nutrition and proper fueling. Um And really, I think he's done a good job with the Lakers. Um, so it's just funny that you mentioned that because I know he was involved with that whole Dwight Howard thing. Um, and so, yeah.
1: As far as a performance standpoint, and you know, I know there's 800 different definitions and titles that we all call ourselves, but we all share a responsibility in the education or at least compliance or at some basic level, some foundational level about what the athletes are consuming and the many touch points that we can have in an athlete's day, whether it's in the gym or it's on the practice court or if it's in a one-on-one session or if it's in the cafeteria, I mean, if we're all considering at trying to, you know, influence positive performance, then I think we all sort of owe it to an athlete. To do our very best work in all the modalities and trans, transdisciplinary uh, foci that we we have to to, to increase performance.
0: I agree, one hundred
1: percent. This might be a good time to start thinking about sort of our next topic that I'd love to discuss, which is I think the 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 hardest part perhaps of nutrition, and that is as we start to understand what to eat and how to fuel and sort of the right approaches. Um, the approach that we might take for one team will drastically maybe, be different from a calorie standpoint from another team based on what the bio demands of that sport is or positional demands. But at an either, even deeper focus, the individual plans. And I think once we start looking at sort of well, how do we periodize out? How do we focus and individualize and tailor the nutritional sort of plans that we have? That becomes a little bit more of a challenge. And I think it it takes a greater attention and maybe a more of a team base, something like a registered dietitian coming in to work with a program that might just exceed the skill sets, the scope, uh, and the expertise level of all the various other sort of transdisciplinary team that you have. So I would love to hear a little bit more about sort of what a periodized nutritional plan looks like, at least uh, whether it's in collegiate or professional or even sort of an individual uh, plan.
0: Yeah, no, you hit it on the head. Um, It it is hard to do, you know, more individualized nutrition in certain settings, like team settings, like basketball or football or soccer or whatnot. Um, But it's really needed. And there's this concept, and I've been doing this for quite a few years, um, called periodized nutrition, and essentially it's it's nutrition periodization tailored to training periodization. So periodized nutrition is you know you use strategies to combine your exercise training and nutrition um, with the ultimate goal of you know getting certain adaptations that are going to enhance your exercise performance. Um, and so when you periodize your nutrition, your your nutritional intake is going to change in response to different periods of your training. Um, so you know, as you know, um, in you know athletes training, we have macrocycles, microcycles, mesocycles, and all those different things have different energy requirements um, and even reco- recovery requirements um, nutritionally. Um, and so, going off of this, um, one of the goals or a couple of the goals under periodized nutrition, how I see it, is you know fueling for the work intended. So that's a real simple way that you can explain to an athlete. Um, how you know obviously your trainings and your different even day-to-day variations um are gonna require different fueling strategies. Um, and also under this, I see the concept of improving metabolic efficiency, which is uh really a coined term by uh Bob Sibuhar, who I mentioned earlier, uh phenomenal sports dietitian. Um and essentially with metabolic efficiency, is that um, you're trying to be a better fat burner and you're trying to use as much fat as you can up until a certain exercise intensity before you have to switch to carbohydrate. And this is really important um, because, and I really highly recommend that people read um, Bob Siebelhar's book, Metabolic uh, Efficiency Training, because it really explains this very well, very simply, especially for athletes, they could read this Um, But really you're trying to manage your blood sugar and you're using different food combinations to do so. And and the point of this is to get you to rely less on simple sugars during training or competition and really getting your body to become more efficient at burning fat at higher training intensities. Um, And really the great health effects of this is that it's going to help reduce risk factors for certain metabolic disease, you know, in this case like type 2 diabetes. Um, you know, this is going to help, you know, have better fasting blood sugar levels, more sustained energy, um, and lower your calorie needs per hour during exercise and even body fat loss. Um, and essentially with this, you're having, you're using different nutritional strategies that are essentially, uh, focused around manipulating carbohydrate intake. Um, but really this is so important, um, to, to incorporate this and it really goes down to um, individualized nutrition, obviously. Um, and don't get me wrong. This is not a a high fat, low carb, low carb, high, or or high carb only or high fat type of diet. It's really, this is where it's not black or white. I really don't see nutrition like this. And, um, you know, I used to be as an example uh, of, I was very big into the high fat, low carb or the ketogenic lifestyle. And I was ketogenic for six, six months. Um, and I really believed in it because, you know, being an endurance athlete, I wanted to rely less on sugar when I'm doing these hundred mile rides. Uh, I wanted to be focused on, you know, being good at burning fat. Um, and it's, you know, some people might say like, oh, but that's really more so for endurance athletes. You know, if you're a basketball player, like, you know, you need the carbs or whatever. Um, but you know, I really think be, being, able to be metabolically efficient, um, it's for everyone because even at rest and you at lower intensities, you want to rely more on burning your fat rather than you want to spare your muscle glycogen, your liver glycogen. Um, so really it's for all type of athletes. Um, but you know, this goes back to this constant fight we see in sports nutrition of high carb versus high fat. And like I said, I used to be a proponent of high fat, low carb, and, but I moved away from it when In all honesty, when I read about metabolic efficiency training and how really it's gray, it's a gray mix of carbohydrate and fat, it's really not black or white. Um, And This is really emphasized through periodized nutrition um, because there are benefits to to high carb and benefits to high fat. Obviously really high intensities, if you're going to go sprint 100 meters in the Olympics, carbohydrate is important. Um, but you know in certain trainings you can decrease the amount of you know carbohydrate you intake and become a better fat burner and especially important in, in certain um, in certain sports um, so with this periodized nutrition is is really cool to me and one of the things I don't know Adam if you've seen this on my Twitter but I talk a lot about train low um, and I just love the concept of train low um, pretty much it's a a term to describe training with low carbohydrate availability. So this means like muscle glycogen or low liver glycogen or a low carb intake during or after exercise. Um, And this really is the goal is to help get training adaptations to improve your performance. And one of them being being better at at burning fat during um, exercise and also improving blood glucose levels. Um, And there's all different ways to train low and you know, I use it as an endurance athlete, um, but it really, I think it's applicable to anyone. Um, you know, some of the ways are to train fasted or train twice per day. So you can train in the morning and then have little to no carbohydrate and then train at a lower intensity in the afternoon. Um, you can train with uh low carb intake during, you know, long training exercise, um, and there's a the concept of sleep low, so training late in the day and then going to bed with carbohydrate intake that's restricted. Um, and really, I, I just love these, these different methods. And it's, it really comes down to um, how incorporating them um, is really important because it comes down to the puritization of an athlete's nutrition. And obviously, you know, these different things like train low is not only just one of them, which has like I mentioned, all different types of strategies under it, but there's also train the gut, which, um, ask you who I talked about earlier. This, the purpose of that nutrition, nutritional strategy is to allow for faster absorption of carbohydrate and reduce GI distress. So you would do that during training. Um, also train high. So training with high carbohydrate availability, training dehydration, Um, and, or, you know, even improving training adaptations by using certain supplements. So nitrates, dietary nitrates, um, especially from beetroot juice is a perfect example. Um, and so these are just different nutritional training uh, methods under periodized nutrition, um, that are really, really cool. Um, and it really takes knowing, the athlete. And because, I mean, it's not that it's hard to incorporate, but it's not like it's super easy, like saying, Hey, go eat some carbs so you can, you know, replenish your muscle glycogen. Right. It's, you actually have to periodize that nutrition and you have to incorporate the train lows or the training, the gut during certain, um, things in your training calendar, you know? Um, and that goes back to, you know, what's your macro cycle, what's your micro cycle, what's your mesocycle? Like all these different things and, and what are the athletes' goals, you know? Um and so even with this periodized nutrition, which if you're really interested in, I highly recommend reading. Um Asker Droop. he uh came out with a paper um uh, puritized nutrition for athletes uh like a few months ago and it, it's it's done phenomenally I mean you see it on social media all the time and it's really a great outline of it all. Um but there's still you know he even says it there's some unanswered questions You know, like how many days per week do you implement these nutritional strategies? You know, what should the intensity or duration be when you're using some of these? Um, Like as an example, when you're training fasted, um, you know, after how many weeks are you going to see these effects? Um, And so to me, as a sports nutritionist, as well as an athlete, you know, because I implement these nutritional strategies, I understand the perspective and what you have to consider as a, um, you know, sports nutritionist working with an athlete, you know, what you, what things you have to consider when you're going to implement this into an athlete's, um, training plan. Um, so as an example, which relates to training low and specifically training fasted. So, um, you know, training after, uh, early in the morning after, a, um, you were sleeping in a fasted state and not eating anything before training. Um, you know, one of the things I consider is, obviously you should go at a lower intensity. Um, but if I was going to incorporate this train low, I also consider the environmental conditions. So let's just say as an example, I say, okay, Tuesday, um, this is going to be an easy day on the bike and I'm going to do a train low strategy. Um, let's say on Tuesday and I'm in South Florida and I ride on an Island, um, and wind happens to be a huge, huge factor. And even if you wanna go easy, sometimes you can't because if you're going against a 20 mile an hour headwind, it brings up the intensity of your workout when you didn't even intend to go at a higher intensity. So it's kind of funny because these are different factors I have to think about as a nutritionist and an athlete being like, okay, is it worth it based on the environmental condition of that day and my training goal to train low or is it really just gonna hurt me? And so these are just, you know, it kind of complicates the situation, but, you know, if you're an athlete and you understand nutrition, um, or you're working with, you know, as a nutritionist, you're working with an athlete and you understand the context of their sport and the different factors that can, um, impact using these nutritional strategies, then, you know, it really helps. Um, so really the concept of periodized nutrition, um, to me is very important and it's something that I practice with myself and with the athletes I work with. And that really focuses on, and this is what I tell them, like, you need to change your energy demands every day based on what you're doing. You know, as an example, you might look at a, a runner or a cyclist and, and say, like, okay, for that sport, you gotta eat high carb like all the time. But really, no, you don't. You have to periodize your intake based on your training and the energy demands of that. Um, and then this will help you health wise, um, by, you know, making your metabolism more efficient. Um, because if you, you know, like we've discussed in the, in the first part of the podcast, if you're constantly eating, you know, a high carb diet and, um, you know, let's say you're, you have an easy recovery day, you're just doing, you know, an easy workout even for like an hour and it's really not at high intensity, you're still increasing your blood sugar, Um, you're increasing your insulin when you really don't need to. And it's really, you know, helping, I mean, it's hurting you um, in your management of blood sugar. So these are just big picture things where it comes down to where diet is not the same every day, you know, take for consideration football players um, and their different needs, even based on positioning. Um, And it's just, it's really, really important. Um, And I, I think sometimes Athletes don't think about this, Um, and maybe even, you know, people surrounding them, whether it's nutritionists or whoever, you know, or maybe there's a lack of it, um, this education of really explaining the context of things and how you periodize your nutrition, because I really think that not only is it going to help with training adaptations, which is one of the goals of periodized nutrition and these particular strategies I talked about, but it's really going to help with their overall health. Um, like I discussed before, no, no athletes immune to disease. Um, so that's really the, the goal of periodized nutrition. And, and that's why I really use it. And I love it. I think it's, it's a great way to take sports nutrition and fueling to a whole different level. You
1: know, like in, in Asker's material, if if you're unfamiliar with it, it is, uh, the site that you can find a lot of that is mysportscience.com. and, uh, his graphics, I think not only the graphics, the visualization of them. But the material that he shares is easily digestible, which is sort of a pun, but uh, an educational pun, if you will. But uh, uh, the materials that he shares are, are top notch. And, uh, and from a pure-designed nutrition standpoint, I love the fact that we're tying in, you know, the emphasis of training and the influence of what you're nutritionally intaking, and how the the two obviously work so closely together. And I think what's that sort of contingent upon is the constant communication from a technical tactical standpoint, the physical development standpoint, and the nutritional team. Because again, if it's going to be, hey, Tuesday, we're going to go off course from a periodization standpoint, and we are going to have an intense 11 on 11, then maybe we need to do something in the, the, the preparation nutritionally for that practice a little bit differently than, say, if it was a scheduled recovery. So the, the communication, I think, between all the teams have to be um, very, very concise and very on board with it. And uh, I think one of the things that we've tried to do here at Wichita State that I think is really important too is as an athlete's coming to their end of their collegiate career, just like you would have the, the the onboarding of educational resources for an athlete as they're coming into their first competitive uh, environment from a freshman standpoint. I do think it's contingent upon us to also educate what athletes need to do as they're coming to their end of their career and how they need to influence and change the nutritional intake that they have to match what their level of physical activity is going to be, especially if they're going from 20 plus hours a week of, you know, intense physical activity to reducing that down to less than five or two or one, or some of them, you know, are getting out of athletics uh, to pursue professional disciplines, that those calorie differences certainly change. And I think that that has been from a holistic standpoint, A well needed educational intervention to help prepare these athletes.
0: Adam, I love that you just said that because that's one of the things that I've done with some athletes. It's called, I call it nutrition detraining. You're right, they've gone from all these years of this, all these hours of training and different energy needs, and then they go into the real world, into a 40 hour week sedentary job, and it hits them like, oh my goodness, I can't eat the way that I did when I was an athlete. And it really hurts them because those were habits that were so ingrained and those were, you know, flavors of foods and everything that, you know, you were so used to and so accustomed to that it's so hard to get rid of that. And then they see weight gain and, and, you know, all these different health effects. And, you know, I just have, you know, one example, I've worked with um, a couple tennis players who played collegiate tennis And, you know, it's just funny, like when they when they're done and and they're out in the real world, how I've seen them freak out about this. And, you know, they can't go for the 400 calorie Starbucks latte anymore um, because they're not playing tennis like they used to. And it's it's a big problem. And they have no clue because they weren't equipped with anything um nutrition education wise on okay, how do I change my eating habits that I've done for so you know, this even happened to me when I was a tennis player competing. Like my 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 uh nutrition intake was obviously different than um when I stopped playing and I had a hard time realizing that and I'm pretty sure I gained weight. Um and it's really, really important. And I call this nutrition detraining and this is not only important for collegiate athletes, but look at professional athletes, especially those in the NFL and how, oh my goodness, the, the differences that happen once they retire and they go and they're, you know, I don't even know what they're doing in their retired life, but, you know, let's say relaxing um, and they're not training like they used to, it, they experience the same problem. And so that's one of the things that I do with athletes because I get it. And it's, it's very psychological too. Um and I call it nutrition detraining.
1: And I think all of that material that you shared has been well needed to be discussed. And, and you know, maybe the the last thing I wanted to kind of talk about as we sort of come towards the end of potentially hour two here is a topic that I think Brandon Marcello uh spoke about last year at the Seattle Sports Science Conference, uh, that Dave uh Tenney hosts out in Seattle, which is coming up here in a couple of weeks. Uh typically the second week of June here, but gave a, a tremendous topic uh, conversation about sports nutrition and talked a little bit about uh, protein in this discussion. And I, I'd love to hear your thoughts as far as uh, how much protein a body can utilize, high protein diets in general, the effects of, uh, of protein from a body composition standpoint, and just some of your, your your thoughts on the topic.
0: Yeah, I love this topic. Um, in fact, personally, um, I really think that protein should be the default macronutrient, especially for athletes. Um, and I think uh, when people think of protein, I feel like in a way they think that it's only for muscle protein synthesis. Um, and I feel like, I mean, obviously, yes, but... There's other functions of protein that are so important that your body uses it for, and it's not just going straight to your muscle. Um, I mean, it's growth and maintenance, so obviously, muscle and and connective tissue. Protein's used in enzymes, it's used in hormones like insulin and glucagon, Um, it's used a bit for energy, you know, forming glucose from amino acids. Um, Proteins are used in transporters in your gut. they're important in uh, immune function, so they form antibodies. Um, they're used as neurotransmitters. They help maintain acid-base balance and maintain fluid balance. So they're really protein is so important in your body, and I think sometimes people forget, or maybe they don't know, um, it's not just going to your muscle. And so, you know, we really do need a bigger intake of protein than I think we see um, in the American diet. And, you know, this kind of goes to, okay, how high is high? And in all honesty, um, I've before I, I I've, I've been an athlete who's focused a lot on high protein, um, but, you know, I'll be honest, I didn't really know what specifically is a high protein diet. What is it really? Um, now, if you look at the recommended daily allowance, which the RDA, it's um, .8 grams per kilogram of body weight per day for protein. Um, and really this is just, this is not the optimal level. This is really just the minimum level. Um, and you know, the definition of a high protein diet really has been considered, you know, greater than like 15% of your total energy, um, and as high as 35% of your total calories or intakes, um, uh, in regards to the RDA. Um, but really. You know, defining what a high-protein diet is, um, is better done through explaining, you know, daily per kilogram amount of body weight, so not percentage of total calories. Um, and one, and um, the International Society of Sports Nutrition's position stand on protein, um, you know, they even come out and say that protein intakes of 1.4 to 2 grams uh, per kilogram of body weight per day – for physically active individuals is not only safe, but may improve the training adaptations to exercise training. Um, so if you look at that range of protein intake, um, and I know, you know others have said that, oh, for endurance athletes it should be like 1.2 to 1.4 grams, and for strength-trained athletes 1.6 to 1.7 grams. Um, but, and, and for those who are like an intermittent sports, like basketball should be like 1.4 to 1.7 grams, but really the upper limit has been around like two grams per kilogram of body weight per day, um, as protein needs for athletes. Um, and I'm going to talk a lot about, uh, Dr. Jose Antonio. He's a good friend of mine. He's he's awesome. I don't know if you follow him on, on social media, but he's he's great. And he is the CEO of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. He's also um, one of the leading researchers on high protein diets. Um, and he's fantastic. He's an associate professor at Nova Southeastern University down in South Florida. Um, and in in regards to effect on body composition, I mean, I'm gonna I'm, a lot of the studies that I'm gonna you know talk about briefly here. It's, it's really coming from him. Um, you know, in terms of body composition, you know, a high protein diet can be favorable in, in, um, helping the energy balance equation and really it can have a protective effect on preserving lean body mass during weight loss. So I'm sure you've seen a lot of athletes, Adam, who, you know, they're trying to lose weight and so they have this caloric deficit. Um, and with that you're gonna lose muscle mass, which you don't wanna do because then you have to start all over again and build up your muscle. Um, and studies have shown that if you increase your protein intake, you can still gain muscle mass even when you have a caloric deficit. Um, and so you know, just briefly touching upon some of uh Jose Antonio's work, you know, in 2014 he he had the first study that showed um, a High protein diet study. It was the first one, and it was also higher in calorie. They didn't find a change in body composition when um, they did 4.4 grams per kilogram of body weight per day, which is very, very high. Um, and they measured body composition and performance. And this was this is five times the amount the RDA of 0.8. Um, and they found no effect on body composition. So um, in resistance trained individuals. And this was, at the point, uh, considered a true high-protein diet. And, you know, he did a follow-up study in 2015 um, using resistance-trained men and women. And um, the protein was 3.4 grams per kilogram of body weight per day. And they combined this with, you know, a periodized heavy resistance training program. And they saw a loss in fat mass. And there were also no side effects found. So this was showing it was it was favorable on body composition um, and there was no effect on, on blood lipids or markers of um, kidney function. And so this was really this is important research. And I feel like a lot of times um, when you see in the media about high protein and, and you know, if you eat too much protein, it's going to lead to body fat. Well, we have studies right here that if you do a simple PubMed search, which you know, any, um, nutritionist or dietitian or whoever in science should be able to do. Um, you can find these studies and, you know, even, uh, another study that he did, um, in 2016, it looked at high protein diet on, um, the health and body composition and resistance trained men. And, um, it was actually the first randomized crossover trial for high protein diet And they found that even overfeeding on protein um, didn't have uh, a negative effect on body composition. And, you know, it's like, okay, so how does a high protein diet, um, you know, how does that help body composition or how does it not hurt body composition? And, you know, one of the things is, is that, you know, you can look at the thermic effect of exercise. So how much you're burning there. Um, then you can look at non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So examples of this would be like, you know, walking around or, you know, um walking upstairs or you know, um moving your shaking your leg or whatever, things like that. Um and then also combining the dietary proteins thermic effect. So the the, the thermic the burning of you know from this feeding, the thermic effect of feeding. And for protein, it takes it's between um like 19 and and 22, somewhere around there, percent uh, of the protein that's burned um, just from, you know, digesting protein. Um, And you can, if you compare that to carbs, it, the thermic effect of carbs is around 12 to 15%, somewhere around there. Um, And then fat is like very low. I think it's around like 2%. Um, So if you look at the thermic effect of protein, you're seeing that there's a greater caloric output, so you're burning more calories um, because of this protein intake. And not only that, but it's also a very satiating or or filling nutrient, Um, you know, and this can help decrease, you know, your food intake. So if you're trying to lose weight, which is very difficult because of appetite, which is psychological, um, you know, the more satiating the nutrient is, then this is gonna help you with um, having a lower food intake. And, you know, going back to these studies, they, there was no change in blood lipids or kidney or liver function. And, um, so it's really fascinating. And even in one of the studies, they looked further into two subjects that even went higher than the RDA by like, I think it was like over 500% and even up to 700%. And they looked at that in relation to the kidney function and there was no change in the kidney function. Um, and so they suggested, you know, there's no harmful side effects from this. Um, and so really the study and and Jose's studies really suggest that when you have this protein overfeeding, and even if you're increasing total energy intake intake, you're less likely to gain body fat. And if you're restricting your calories, it's going to help preserve, um, lean body mass, which is obviously critical because you don't you know, want to lose weight and have, you want it obviously to come from body fat and not, um, Muscle mass. And so, um, you know, essentially, this is showing us that consuming protein well above the recommended daily allowance can really alter in in a favorable fashion body composition um, as long as you are training and you're exercising and you have an exercise training regimen. Um, And in fact, he's now running another study on high protein diets in women, and I'm in the study. Um so i'm eating so i'm eating let's see what i mean i'm eating about 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight uh of protein per day and actually even on some a lot of my days i've gotten above 3 grams um and so i, I mean i take in about 150 to like i've reached up to i think like 240 grams of protein in a day um i'm i'm averaging around like 160 and let me tell you something, I'm noticing a big difference in body composition and I'm not changing my carbohydrate intake. Um, it's still around what I usually do because I periodize my carbs um, and I'm really not changing anything. And I've noticed a huge, huge difference and I, I don't look at scales because I, I, I could care less what I weigh. Um, I care more about how I feel and how my clothes fit because that, that's a better um, gauge in my peri- um, in my opinion. Um, and I can tell you right now, my clothes fit <laughs> much better. Um, and so, you know, in his high protein studies, so now he's looking at women and, uh, we're all resistance training and I don't know, I'm not sure what else, I don't know if he could tell me what else he's looking at. Cause I actually don't even know if I'm in the control group or not, but anyways, um, but I, I think also he's looking at bone health, um, and how it affects, um, bone mineral density, which is another thing that I'm going to talk about. Um, because another concern with high protein diets is that, you know, they can increase the amount of calcium that's excreted in your urine and this can increase your risk for osteoporosis and this isn't good. And, and really this is not the case. Um, and this idea or this myth behind it is because, you know, some of the early studies were reporting, you know, this increase in, in the acidity of your urine, um, due to an increase in your dietary protein, and it, it appeared that there was a, like a, a link drawing calcium from the bones um, in order to buffer this acid load. Um, but really, the main source of the increase in your urinary calcium from a high protein diet is has shown to be more of um, due to intestinal or, or dietary and not from bone uh, breaking down bone or getting it from bone. So Ultimately, this bone loss hypothesis has really been refuted, and in fact, um, the National Osteoporosis Foundation, they came out I, really with a recent um, review um, of dietary protein and bone health. It was a systematic review and a meta-analysis. Um, And I'm going to give a shout out to my uh, alma mater Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science because there's a lot of authors on this paper that came from Tufts and they concluded there was no adverse effects of higher protein intakes on bone health. And in fact, in in some uh, bone sites, there was a positive trend on bone mineral density. Um, And so, you know, they even mentioned that increasing dietary protein had a significant increase in the um, calcium absorption in your intestine, um, and there was no increase in you know skeletal breakdown in in, um, in terms of getting calcium. Um, and I kind of go with this. I'm really excited to see you know. Um, I'm like I said, I've done high protein most of my life, but now I feel like this is you know what I'm doing in the study is now a real high protein. Um, and my bone mon- bone mineral density when I tested up at Nova Southeastern um, was 2.2, a T score of 2.2. Um, so I was really 98 percentile. So my bone mineral density was higher, um, like 98 percentile of my bone mineral density. And I, like I said, I've been doing high protein for most of my life and now it's, it's even higher. And so it will be really cool within a year to see how this, you know, even higher protein intake than what my body was used to, um, will affect my bone mineral density. Um, so I think that'll be really cool. I mean, granted, there's so many different things that will affect your bone mineral density, obviously strength training being one of them. Um, that's why I really prioritize, um, you know, resistance exercise. Um, but really it's, it's coming down to, in terms of the myth regarding calcium, that there's no adverse effects in that uh, sense. Now, could we have some randomized controlled trials that you know go for a couple years yeah let's see what happens then um but as of now there's there's nothing to support that you know it's bad for for you know calcium levels and bone health um and kind of going off of this in terms of going on with these myths and the reason why I really wanted to bring this up is because I've seen this a lot in social media recently and in health or you know different magazines I think more that are geared towards women um and Jose and I have really you know, kind of laugh, like we'll, we'll send each other some of these, you know, high protein articles or or tweets we see that are so against high protein. And, and some of the things they say that has no science to back it. And, um, you know, it's become a big thing recently that we're seeing. And, you know, one of the myths is regarding the amount of protein absorbed at one time. And, um, You know, some some publications, you know, have said that, you know, maximum stimulation of muscle protein synthesis rate occurs, you know, when you intake 20 to 30 grams of protein at one time. Um, And I remember there was a tweet recently. I'm not going to get too much into it, but it it stimulated a lot of controversy um, because the way that the tweet was phrased, and this was coming from a reputable source, Um, it was phrased that you can only use 30 grams maximum at a time. Um, and really it's been shown in a study that you can actually, um, still oxidize or burn protein amino acids at doses much more, much higher than that. Um, there was actually a study that found that, in, you know, taking in 40 grams of whey protein after uh, resistance exercise stimulated, um, a, a larger response in muscle protein synthesis, uh, compared to 20 grams. Um, and this was in young resistance trained men. Um, so essentially it was showing that 40 was better. And so really, you know, to take away from this, the biggest thing is that, you know, currently it's, we don't know how much protein your body can use at one time. Um, but for some odd reason people are just, it's, I guess, you know, people are saying, Oh, 20 to 30 grams is what you can, you know, um, absorb at a maximum and and use at one time. And I think that's kind of something that's been said by people who maybe just want to, you know, not promote a high protein diet. Um, really it's, we don't even know how much protein your body can use at one time. Um, and kind of going into another myth regarding the kidneys, which I, which I talked a a bit about earlier in Jose's studies, um, and how they didn't find any detrimental effects on the kidneys. Um, you know, this myth is still around because, you know, eating more protein is going to increase the amount that of work that your kidneys do. So this increases the load on your kidneys. Right. And so there's really no data that exists on this. Um, and if you really ask someone like, Hey, you know, show me some research that shows in healthy people that too much protein will hurt your kid, hurt their kidneys. And there's, there's nothing to show that. Um, now if you already have an existing kidney problem, that's a different story. Um, we're not talking about that. We're talking about a healthy population there's no detrimental effects on the kidneys. And and like I previously mentioned in Jose's three studies up there, there was nothing. Um, In fact, Stu Phillips, I don't know if you've heard of him. He's another great researcher. Um, And he had a a review that came out on um, higher dietary protein diets and weight loss and specifically a focus on athletes. Um, And he specifically states that, um, you know, an examination of the statements that come from the Institute of Medicine, um, with respect to the protein RDA, um, in the United States, as well as the world health organizations report on protein intakes, there really is no evidence to link a high protein diet to kidney disease. Um, so when you see this out in, um, you know, in, you know, some health magazine or you see a tweet that, you know, oh, you shouldn't have high protein because it's going to affect effect on the kidneys or whatever. There's nothing to back that. And this also leads me to, okay, so why is there so much misinformation about this in the media? Um, and honestly, I, I don't even know. Like I, for instance, I've had conversations with Jose on this, you know, why are people stating this? And, you know, I went and I looked back at some of my nutrition textbooks. And that same statement, you know, regarding the kidney function was in there. And um, it's just really fascinating that, you know, why is this information there and misinformation? And, you know, I've even asked some uh, registered dietitians, for instance, I was like, hey, like, look, I'm gonna, I want to send you some of these studies to, sh- you know, regarding, you know, high protein diet. And I'm just curious as to why, you know, people, you know, still promote these myths. Um and one of the things that was mentioned to me was oh well, because you know if an athlete increases their protein intake then that means that they're probably going to have a lower carb intake and we know carbs are really important for them and you know so when you have a higher protein intake it's just going to replace their carb intake and you know I I even told Jose this and he was like you know I kind of don't see it that way um and I don't see that either because I think first and foremost, athletes love carbs.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Typically, they—that's uh, the first and probably easiest thing they they reach for.
0: <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure that's not the case. And even in his studies, his high protein studies, like he never—it was never a low carb component. The carb was just kept normally. Um, so really, that's not. A, a, I mean, if you have someone maybe who has an eating disorder and they're looking for fad diets and they see certain things on high protein and low carb, that's a different perspective. But I really don't think it's going to replace carbs in an athlete's diet. Um, and so it's just really fascinating how we have all these myths and a lot of it is being written, not a lot of it, but I've recently we've seen a lot of it written by people who really should know um, where to look if, um, you know, regarding statements like that. And it's all it takes is a simple PubMed search of the research to figure out, okay, what is, you know, the conclusion regarding, um, the effect of high protein on kidneys or the effect that it's going to have on our bone mineral density. Um, and there's, there's no research that states otherwise. And so that's why it's very confusing why we have this misinformation in the media, um, and I just, it's, it's kind of mind blowing. It really is. And I just don't understand it. Maybe certain people aren't keeping up with the research. I don't know. Um, or, you know, they have ulterior motives as to why they're just so anti-protein when it's such an important macronutrient. Um, and, and, it you know, especially for the athlete who wants weight loss and maintains their muscle mass. It's so important and it can help that. It's a protective effect. Um and so I just, I thought this would really be important to, to just briefly touch upon these things and kind of um, hopefully steer it clear. And I hope if Jose is going to listen to this, he uh, likes my, the job that I did It Explain <laughs> He's a like, we have conversations on this all the time, and, and so he's like, "Yeah, I love that you're going to talk about this." <laughs>
1: it's yeah, I know he has to uh, at some point in time be listening and and incredibly proud of uh, of the the topics and your champion of this uh, this philosophy and this pursuit, Katie. I want to respect your time. I know I've stolen or have asked you to come on and share what is otherwise uh, a lot of information, and I feel like. In the time that we've spent together, that there is such a huge critical umbrella of a holistic approach to sports nutrition that not not only helps athletes achieve the performance that they're looking for, but maybe more importantly, uh, and certainly more importantly, achieve a holistic and well balanced lifestyle outside of it, and it's setting them up for continued success uh, and health and well being outside of their athletic performance. And I think those two uh, are more hand in hand than they are uh, separate, especially with a, a well-rounded approach to sports nutrition. So is there anything that if someone was listening to this and they wanted, they, whether it's high protein diets or purized nutrition or or cramping, or you know the the philosophy around unhealthy fueling strategies for athletes, and and what they could do different, or hydration, or sports drinks, or the gut. Is there any resources that you would want to point them to, or ways that they can connect with you, so that? rather than sort of just being exposed to the idea of it that they can kind of dig deeper and maybe ask you the the a little bit more specific questions no
0: i i mean i'm always open to people asking me about these topics i love i mean i'm constantly up to date on you know sports nutrition research and this is my passion more so like you'll see a lot of dietitians focus on like recipes and helping people you know come up with recipes and all those things but This is more my focus, the nutrition science and digging deep into it and, and more the applied science part, like taking what I see in studies and applying it in the real world and and seeing, you know, how, how we can make it practical. Um, And so I, I would have no problem talking to anyone who would like to discuss any of these further. Um, But even so, one of the biggest things that I find is so important, you know, If an athlete or whoever wants to get information like this, you know, that steps away from the whole, you know, recipe side. Um, But, you know, I think Twitter is such a powerful uh, platform. And I've noticed that the sports um, scientists, whether, you know, it's related to strength and conditioning or exercise physiology or nutrition, Um, I really feel like the platform is the greatest thing to just troll on. I mean, not troll on people, but like, just read everything. I mean, and you have, that's where all the PhD people, like all these really cool things. I see this through Twitter and I just, I read it all the time and I just find it so fascinating. That's really I would recommend is more so than Facebook or Instagram or whatever, really just getting on Twitter and following certain, you know, leading sports nutritionists and, you know, all related to sports science and see the studies that they're posting and, and, you know, their comments on it. And to me, that I've learned more than I could ever in a textbook. I mean, and it's really, really cool. And, you know, one of the things, and I think you kind of hit this on the head earlier that I like to do is obviously mention these studies, but I like to also show how I apply them and experiment. And I know one of the biggest things that I've done is, is with beetroot juice. Um, and that's actually a lot of uh, w- the work that I did in collaboration with Carl Valle, um, especially preparing his athletes for Rio uh, 2016. And that was huge. And I did so much experimentation with that. And let me tell you, there's a lot of beetroot juice supplement companies that don't like me right now. Because I literally would interrogate them because at the end of the day, I always, I work for an athlete. I don't work for a company and I, I really want to see where, you know, whether it's a supplement or whatever it is, really have the eye on helping the athlete and not just trying to make money. And you'd be really shocked but there's a lot of really crappy, you know, products out there or, you know, supplements, you know, for ergogenic aids that really aren't great. And it really takes someone who knows the nutrition science to help an athlete, you know, kind of figure out, okay, which is the best thing to go with. Um, and so, you know, even through Twitter, you know, you can learn a lot about these things. And I've, I've, I don't know if you've seen this, but like, I've interrogated companies on Twitter, and maybe I've made them look bad, but I asked them questions, and I drilled them um, and it's, you know, because I want an answer because I want to be able to help the athlete. And I think those are things that you don't see like in a, a magazine article or, you know, in sports nutrition textbook. Um, this is like real life stuff. It's a, taking the science and applying it, um, in the real world. And, and it's, it's really cool. And so, you know, if athletes did want more information on this, I would be more than happy to talk about it. And I would be more than happy, um, to steer them in a direction of, you know, certain people that they can read what they write, um, on Twitter, um, as that's really a a great platform for, for learning about all these things. And I've actually had athletes that I know and don't know that have reached out to me and been like, Hey, I really love what you do on Twitter. Like I love reading some of those things because I don't get that perspective from anybody else. Um, so it's really cool to see that applied and, you know, try to learn how I can apply it to myself as an athlete. And, you know, just as an example, the whole train low thing. Um, and so that's where I would say if you wanted more information, it really is coming from, you know, these these scientists that are talking on Twitter and, and applying the science and talking about it. So that's that's definitely my recommendation.
1: And for the audience, again, I know I mentioned it earlier in the show, you can find Katie on Twitter at on your mark underscore N-U-T-R. Um, and I, I agree with you. I absolutely think. I think it's a great playground to experiment, to learn, to to get a better understanding of the various sort of disciplines and uh, research and and uh, information each of these disciplines is sharing and how they uh, relate with each other and how our performance team can continue to uh, do what's right for the athlete. And, you know, much like Carl, I love the fact that you hold hold them account- or accountable to uh, what their marketing claims are, because I do think that most likely, companies hire a PR team or an advertising team or a marketing team, but at some level, they do have to be responsible for the coaches and the athletes that they, uh, they service. So, Katie, I know this was a, uh, a long day for you, but I think it was a well-needed and a great start to laying the foundation for the Decoding Excellence show. And uh, I, I honestly feel like the next nutritionalist that comes on – um, whomever they may be, uh, has incredible big shoes to fill because this was a comprehensive full picture approach to, uh, sports nutrition. And I just can't thank you enough for coming on.
0: No, thank you, Adam. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you. I want to thank Katie Mark for coming on the decoding excellence show I took a bunch of things away from part two and if you haven't listened to part one I highly suggest you go back download the episode and listen to part one as well from discussions about the gut microbiome to sports drinks and do we really need them or do uh, or could we really get by without them to everything from heat related muscle cramps to even this show which dives a little bit deeper into talking about, what it means to be fit or unhealthy and how we can start to do some blood analysis and get better understanding of why athletes need to be both fit and healthy. Uh, we start discussing periodized nutrition and how different macro and micronutrients are, are more important at different phases and times of the competitive annual cycle. Then we start to talk a little bit more about high-protein diets and what that means and what really constitutes a high-protein diet versus a low-protein diet. I took a lot away from this show, and I just cannot thank Katie Mark enough for spending and investing a couple hours with me discussing everything from athletic nutrition and what it means and how athletes can harness their nutritional interventions and support to really get the best performance out of their bodies and hopefully stand on the podium and, and accept a gold medal around their neck. want to thank Katie for that. want to thank our sponsors, Vaud Performance, as well. And like always, the Decoding Excellence Show really aims to be a different show. We want to have conversations. We want to sit around the fire and have these intimate fireside chats and really get to understand what makes a coach tick, why they got into what they do, and how there's more similarities across all the professions and disciplines when it goes into elite performance. So like everything, we're diving deep into understanding what the tools, the tactics and the tricks of high-performance coaches and what they do and how they do it and why they do it. If you've resonated with any of the materials in this show, please go on to social media. Share this show on whatever platform of your choosing. And then log on to iTunes and give us a five-star review. Your reviews on iTunes goes a long way for allowing other people that might be unfamiliar with the Decoding Excellence show to being exposed to it. So it does help us move up in rankings, which only allows for us to get a little bit more exposure, which only allows for other coaches to find the show easier. So pay it forward, go onto iTunes, give a five-star review, and start investing in the next class of high-performance coaches.